The words to which I should like to call your attention this morning are to be found in Paul's epistle to the Ephesians in chapter 6, verses 5 to 9, from verse 5 to verse 9, in the sixth chapter of Paul's epistle to the Ephesians. Servants, be obedient to them that are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling, in singleness of your heart, as unto Christ, not with eye service as men pleasers, but as the servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, with good will, doing service as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that whatsoever good thing any man doeth, the same shall he receive of the Lord, whether he be bond or free. And ye masters, do the same things unto them, forbearing threatening, knowing that your master also is in heaven, neither is there respect of persons with him. Now, we come here to a, a new application of the principle which the Apostle had been laying down in the previous chapter, especially in verses 18 and 21. Here is the controlling thought. Be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. And then uh, the actual application of that is in verse 21, submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. Now it is essential that we should bear in mind that that is the background. We are looking here at one of the illustrations which the Apostle gives us of how being filled with the Spirit we are to submit ourselves one to another. He's already shown us how that is to be done in the matter of the married relationship. And he's also shown us how it is to be done in the home, in the relationship between children and their parents. And here he takes up this third illustration. Now, I say it's important we should remember the background for this reason. That uh, these words are not addressed to the world as such. The world is incapable of doing this. This is possible only to people who are filled with the Spirit. And therefore we must realize the importance of the context. And as we do so, we are reminded again of certain very important things. One is that our Christianity is something that covers the whole of our life and affects our every relationship. Nothing that the Christian does is the same as that which is done by the non-Christian. They may do the same things, but they do them in a different way. Christianity, I say, is not confined to the church, to Sunday. It is something that manifests itself and reveals itself in the whole of life. There is nothing more practical in the world this morning than the Christian faith and the Christian teaching. And, of course, the very way in which the Apostle takes the trouble to work it out in these various departments of life is a, a proof of that in and of itself. You see, he, he's not content with just saying, now those of you who are filled with the Spirit, 
submit yourselves one to another and leave it at that. No, as a, as a very wise and able teacher, he knows that we've got to go into details. We've got to take these points up and apply them. So he takes these examples. And the examples that he chooses are those uh, which are quite typical and uh, especially typical, of course, of where the stresses and the strains in life tend to manifest themselves most frequently. Clearly, that was the rule which must have guided him in choosing these particular illustrations. The most delicate relationship of all is the married relationship. Well, for that very reason, because it is the supreme relationship amongst human beings, the tensions and the stresses and the strains are liable to be at their greatest there. And then next to that comes the family. Here again is a most delicate, intimate relationship. And the devil is always busy. Where man is at his highest, the devil attacks him most strongly. And then the third, you see, is this one of the relationship of uh, masters and servants. This comes probably next in order to the other two as the seat uh, or the place where tensions and stresses and strains are most uh, liable to be felt. Well, I needn't take your time. We're all familiar with the fact that this particular relationship we are looking at here is one that has always caused a great deal of trouble throughout the history of the human race. You can read about it here in the Old Testament. You can read about it in your secular history books. It has always been a cause of trouble, tension, disagreement, and uh, much quarreling. And, of course, it still is. It is one of the acute problems confronting this country, confronting all the countries of the world at this present hour. And I venture to go further. It always will be a great problem. While man is in sin, and while as the result of that he is always primarily and essentially selfish and self-centered, there are bound to be tensions in this particular relationship. You see, we have multiplied the machinery to deal with this particular problem during this present century, and indeed during the last hundred years, in a quite exceptional manner. Organizations and societies and acts of parliament have been dealing with this whole problem of the labor, relationship of master and servant, Yet in spite of all that, it is one of the major problems confronting this country and all countries at this present hour. And I say we shouldn't be surprised at that. Because as man is in sin, he is essentially, in the first instance, self-centered, selfish. And as that is true of all, whatever their position in life, it is inevitable that there should be these problems and difficulties and stresses. Well, now then, fortunately for us, the Apostle takes the trouble to deal with this and to do so in detail. Now, it's, uh, as we shall see, uh, this is a, a very big and a very involved and a very difficult subject. And therefore, we must approach it very carefully. 
and I'm going to try to do so. So hold yourselves in restraint. You've all got strong feelings about this. Don't jump to conclusions. I'm going to give you a, a series of points for your considerations. And don't imagine that any one point has said everything. It will be qualified by the next one. So listen carefully and patiently. Uh, the subject, I say, is so surrounded by difficulties that such an exhortation is essential. The trouble about all this uh, problem, of course, is that it's so frequently thought of by people in slogans, and they just hurl their slogans at one another, and that never gets you anywhere. The matter's got to be reasoned through and considered carefully in the light of the teaching. Very well, then, I would indicate, first of all, in the light of what the Apostle tells us here, that there are certain general characteristics of this uh, Christian teaching with respect to this particular matter. And the first is this one, of course, that it is quite unique. The Christian teaching is unlike any other teaching whatsoever. What we are looking at here this morning is something that cannot be found anywhere else. I know there are other teachings that seem to look like it. They've borrowed from it. There are all sorts of philosophers who've borrowed from the Christian teaching. They were not Christians, but they saw the excellence of certain aspects of Christian teaching, and they borrow it, and they've used it to suit their own purposes, and therefore there are teachings which may simulate the Christian teaching, but of course they never are the Christian teaching. They always leave out the most vital thing of all. We notice the uniqueness of the teaching and how it differs from everything else. The second thing is this. This teaching assumes that because we are Christian, we have undergone a very profound change at the very center of our life. I mean by that, that as I was saying just now, that this teaching is not addressed to the world. It would be utterly pointless, pointless, to take this teaching and uh, to address it to, to uh, a gathering of working people who are not Christians or a, or a gathering of employers who are not Christians. That is, according to the New Testament, something which is really quite ridiculous. To do that would mean that uh, we don't believe in regeneration. It would mean that we don't believe that man is entirely perverted as the result of sin. It would mean that we don't agree that man is essentially selfish and self-centered. But of course the whole of the biblical teaching is based upon that supposition. And therefore these epistles are only addressed to churches, to members of the Christian church. These were not uh, newspaper articles put in the daily press. They hadn't got newspapers and even if they had, these would never have appeared in them. These are for churches, for church members, for Christians. In other words, people who've been born again, who've got a new nature, a new outlook. They're, a new, they're new creatures. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now, the Apostle has reminded these Ephesians of that at great length in uh, the first three chapters, and then he's summed it all up again in chapter 4, beginning at verse 17. Ye have not so learned Christ, he said. Then he says in chapter 5, You were sometimes darkness, but now are ye light in the Lord. New creatures. It assumes then 
you see the significance of all this. There are people whose names and statements are constantly appearing in the press, whose names and contributions are in the press, mainly because they've never grasped that principle. They think that Christianity is a teaching which can be offered to the world as it is, and they appeal to people to put it into practice. They are denying the first principles of Christianity. They're wasting their breath. It never leads to anything. Verily, of course, they have their reward, and that is the publicity. But uh, they don't touch the situation. They don't make any difference whatsoever to what takes place. But above all, I say, it is a complete denial of the whole basis of the Christian teaching. It assumes a radical and an entire change in the people to which it is addressed. But then, thirdly, it assumes another thing. It assumes that these people have got a knowledge of doctrine and that they have an ability to work out that doctrine. You see, that's the way the New Testament teaches us Christian living. The New Testament doesn't come to us and say something like this. Well, now, here you are, you're a Christian, and you've got certain problems, difficulties. How are you to behave as an employee? How are you to behave as an employer? What are you to do? Ah, the only thing to do is take it to the Lord. Just pray about it. And then he'll show you how to do it. He'll do it for you. No, no. That's not, that's not, uh, that's not New Testament teaching at all. New Testament teaching is this. First of all, you are given your doctrines, your teaching. Then you are told that you've got to apply that. So obviously, if we don't know the doctrines, we can't apply them. If we haven't done an understanding of the teaching, how can we put it into operation? No, no, we first of all have the instruction, we receive it, we understand it, then we say, now then, in the light of this, this is what I've got to do. That is the New Testament doctrine of sanctification. And what we've got here, of course, is just one practical example and illustration of how we show that we are being sanctified in practice. This is the sanctified life in this matter of servants and masters. But without a knowledge of the doctrine, it can't be done. And then the last general observation which I offer is this. Once more, the balance and the fairness of the teaching. Starts with the servants. He starts in each instance, you remember, with those who are called upon to subject themselves the wife to the husband, the children to the parents, the servants to the masters, according to the flesh. But, how carefully is to put the two sides? Never injustice, never unfairness. Husbands are told about their duties. Fathers are told about their duties. Masters are reminded here, you masters, do the same things unto them, forbearing, threatening, knowing that your master also is in heaven. Neither is there respect of persons with him. Oh, I remind you of that because it is to me one of the great glories of this teaching. It's what makes it so utterly, entirely unique. There is nothing in the world that does this as the scripture does it. To me, it's sufficient proof in and of itself of the fact that this is indeed the very word of God himself. 
He looks down upon us all. And all our divisions and distinctions of which we make so much. He puts them at the right level. He shows us the right perspective. And everything is there under him. Very well. There are some general characteristics. But now then, let's begin to approach the teaching. And at once, we find ourselves introduced to the great problem. Servants. What does that mean? Well, now, this is when our translations are a little bit unfortunate. Because they don't give us the true impression of the meaning of the word. It really means slaves. Slaves. The apostle was not dealing here with the case of hired servants. There were in the, in the civilization and in the world at the time these things were written, there were hired servants. There were house servants very often that were hired and were given their wages. But the apostle is not dealing with that here essentially. He is dealing with slaves. For there was slavery at that time. And many of these early Christians were literally slaves. Now, we've got absolute proof that that is what he means here. The word that the apostle used is enough in and of itself. He used the word that is always used for slaves. Not for hired servants. But if there were any doubt, it's settled by verse 8. Knowing that whatsoever good thing any man doeth, the same shall he receive of the Lord... Whether he be bond, bound, that's a slave, you see, or free. There's your free men. So the contrast is between a slave and a free man. In other words, the apostle is quite definitely and specifically here dealing with the question of slavery. And how the slave is to conduct himself. In other words, uh, we cannot look at this paragraph, this whole statement, without at once coming face to face with the problem of slavery and, in particular, the biblical teaching with regard to slavery. Now, the moment I say that, of course, you see at once that uh, we are looking at a highly difficult and controversial subject. There are many people who say their main reason for not being Christian is the attitude of the Bible and of the New Testament to slavery. They say that's enough to damn it, and they can have nothing to do with it. It's often been a cause of great perplexity to many Christian people when they're involved in discussions with regard to this. To throw your minds back, to imagine what it must have been like 160 years ago when Wilberforce was waging his great campaign for the abolition of slavery in this country. Try and cast your minds back to the 60s of the last century when they fought their civil war in the United States on this very subject. There you see at once uh, what a subtle and difficult and involved problem this really is. And there is still a great deal of confusion with respect to it. Very well, we are, we are bound to look at this. But uh, let me remind you that... Uh, in doing that, we are not only looking at the problem and the question of slavery. We are incidentally looking at a number of other problems. We are looking at the whole problem of the relationship of the Christian to the state. We are also looking at the whole problem of the relationship of the Christian to trade and business at the present time. Yes, and in particular, uh, to trades unionism. 
We are looking indeed at the whole problem of the attitude of the Christian to social conditions, to politics, reform, and even possible revolution and rebellion. It's all here. You see, the New Testament deals with great principles, and we are meant to apply them. It would be foolish for somebody to say, well, if that deals with slavery, what's it got to do with me? Well, the answer is this. Slavery is only one of the possible relationships of men to men. And what the apostle is concerned about is the behavior and the conduct and the reaction of Christian people who are in any position of subservience to somebody else. Christians who are employed in any sense. And it goes further. We're all, as it were, subservient to the state, to social enactments and social conditions. So I say that this subject, if we are to look at it truly and properly, will take us into all those various realms. Here it was slavery. Now the whole question is, how does a slave conduct himself? What is he to do about it? Is he to try to get himself free? Is he to try to, ab to abolish this? Very well, you see, it leads to all the others immediately. Any form of employment that is conceivable. Any kind of social or economic relationship. And uh, that is why we should thank God for the scriptures. There are people who look at these things superficially and say, well now, here I am, should I join a trade union or not? There's nothing in the, in the Bible about trade union because they hadn't got trade unions at those times. But the principle is here and it's in this very paragraph. And therefore I say it is our business to look at it together. Get hold of the principle, then apply it to the particular aspect of the problem with which you find yourself confronted. Now, it seemed to me that the best way of approaching this was to gather together the teaching of the Bible with regard to this subject. And there are a number of passages that do deal with it. We read one of them at the beginning. Matthew 22, 15 to 21. When uh, you remember certain of the Pharisees and Herodians came together to our Lord and put that catch question to him. Shall we pay tribute unto Caesar or not? And you remember our Lord's reply. Show me the tribute money. And he looked at it and he said, Whose is this image and superscription? They said, Caesar's. Then he gave that great reply. Render therefore unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's and a thing they hadn't asked him about, but which he added. And unto God, the things that are God's. And we are told that they marveled and went away surprised. We can understand that, can't we? They had more than they bargained for. They had a teaching that they'd never anticipated. There is one other very interesting example of this self-same thing which is often missed and forgotten, it's at the end of the 17th chapter of the Gospel according to St. Matthew. Let me just read it to you. When, beginning at verse 24, when they were come to Capernaum, they that received tribute money came to Peter and said, Doth not your master pay tribute? He saith, Yes. And when he was come into the house, Jesus prevented him, saying, What thinkest thou, Simon? Of whom do the kings of the earth take custom or tribute? Of their own children or of strangers? 
Peter saith unto them, of strangers. Jesus saith unto him, then are the children freed, notwithstanding. Lest we should offend them, go thou to the sea and cast an hook, and take up the fish that first cometh up. And when thou hast opened his mouth, thou shalt find a piece of money that take and give unto them for me and thee. Then the, uh, another classical statement, of course, is in the epistle to the Romans, chapter 13 at the beginning. Let every soul be subject unto the higher powers, for there is no power but of God, the powers that be are ordained of God. Whosoever therefore resisteth the power, resisteth the ordinance of God. And they that resist shall receive to themselves damnation. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to the evil. And so on. A most important statement. Then there is that epistle to Philemon, which we read together at the beginning. And which, of course, is dealing quite directly and specifically with this whole question of slavery. And then there is a reference to the same matter, the same principle, in the first epistle of Peter, chapter 2, beginning at verse 13. Submit yourselves to every ordinance of men for the Lord's sake, whether it be to the king as supreme, or unto governors, as unto them that are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers, and for the praise of them that do well, and so on. Then he goes on and says, as free, and not using your liberty for a cloak of maliciousness, but as the servants of God, then servants, be subject to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the froward. And remember, these instructions about obeying the powers that be were written when the emperor was none other than the terrible men, the emperor Nero. But they're told to be subject to him and to all such powers. Now, there are the chief examples of direct teaching. But, of course, you get indirect teaching in the book of Daniel and Daniel's conduct and behavior. Consult especially chapters 3 and 6. And then you get some very interesting implied teaching. For instance, in the 16th chapter of the book of the Acts of the Apostles, where the Apostle Paul and... Uh, Silas were arrested and thrown into the innermost prison and scourged and so on. And you remember we are told that they were going to let them free. But the apostle objected and said that as a Roman citizen, he demanded that the magistrates who had wrongly subjected them to such treatment and imprisonment should themselves come in person and let them out. It's an interesting sidelight on this whole question. And there's a further example in Acts 25 where the Apostle Paul appeals to Caesar. He had a right to do that as a Roman citizen. And there he exercised his right. Well now then, there are the main passages in the scripture that have a bearing on this teaching that we are looking at here in Ephesians 6. Now once more I feel constrained to make some general comments. Because uh, here, uh, it seems to me, is a very vital matter. And my first comment is this. Have you ever been struck by the fact that there is comparatively very little teaching in the scriptures on this subject, directly and specifically? 
in this great volume, or in your New Testament, how little direct and specific teaching there is on this subject. There is what I've quoted to you, but it is mainly a matter of our deducing from the general teaching the principles which are to govern this matter. Now, to me, that is a most important and significant matter in and of itself. How? Well, in this way. Why doesn't the Bible give more attention to this? Why doesn't the Bible give us much more teaching, in a much more abundant sense, with regard to this extraordinary problem that has always been so present in the life of the human race? Why such paucity of teaching? And here I think we arrive at one of our great general controlling principles, which is this. The Bible's real big interest everywhere is in a man's relationship to God. That's what it's about. The object, the purpose of this book is to consider man's relationship to God, primarily. All its stress, all its emphasis, all its space, as it were, is given to that. Now, our Lord, of course, pointed that out, as I say, in his reply to the Pharisees and the Herodians, and that is what makes that incident so significant. Here come these men, you see, typical representative modern men. Master, is it lawful to pay tribute unto Caesar or not? What has the church got to say about apartheid? What has the church got to say about economics? What's the church got to say about war? What's, why isn't the church saying, is it lawful to give tribute to Caesar or... That's the question, you see, that's man's question always. Not a word about man's relationship to God. Oh no, man's relationship to men, our rights and justices, and so on. So we're always asking these, but you see the reply, Render therefore unto Caesar the things which are Caesar's, and the thing you've forgotten, and which gets you into a muddle about these particular problems, unto God the things that are God's. Now that, I say, is a perfect example of the biblical emphasis, the biblical attitude. It is man's relationship to God that the Bible is concerned about. That is its great message, its first message, always its first message. Let me give you another illustration. You remember a man, a scribe, came to our Lord and asked, which is the first and the greatest commandment? Now, you see, he again, like all those Pharisees and scribes, spent a lot of his time in arguing about these details of the law. There were 613 of them. And the question was, which was the greatest of these 613? One said this, the other said that. And there they were, arguing about all these. They spent their time in doing that. And the man came and said, now, which do you say is the greatest? And our Lord said, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and soul and mind and strength. That is the first and the chiefest commandment. And the second, yes, but it's only second, is like unto it. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. 
He doesn't put that first, you see. Human relationships don't come first. They never come first in the Bible. It is always a man's relationship to God. He breaks through all this petty, fogging, legalistic attitude. This or that. No, no, he says. That's the trouble with you Pharisees and scribes, he says elsewhere. You tithe mint and rue and anise and come in, but have forgotten the weightier matters of the law. You'll go and come to sea and land to make one proselyte, but you've forgotten the love of God. Missing the big thing, the great thing, the central thing. Well now, in the Bible, everywhere, that's the thing that matters. It's here, you see, in our passage this morning. Servants, be obedient to them that are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling, in singleness of your heart, as unto Christ. Not with eye service as men please us, but as the servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. He lifts it right up into the atmosphere of God and our relationship to him. And he's careful to say the same to the masters, knowing that you, our master, also is in heaven. Neither is the respect of persons with him. Always the same. Very well, there's the first comment which I would make on this teaching. And that brings me to a second. And this, of course, is the one that is hated by so many today who claim that they are such practical men of affairs. This is the great misrepresentation of Christianity at the present time. But I put it like this as a principle. Life in this world is always regarded in the Bible as being of secondary importance. The Bible's view of life in this world is that it is just a pilgrimage. Just a journey. What are we? Well, says Peter, we are strangers and pilgrims. You've got it in the whole of your Old Testament. Summed up so magnificently in the 11th chapter of the epistle to the Hebrews, the gallery of the saints, the hearers of the faith. What was the truth about them? Well, here it was, they say. These men were looking for a city which hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God. They regarded themselves but as strangers and pilgrims in the earth. They were journeymen. That's why Moses, you see, one of them, he had his eye on the recompense of the reward. He preferred, therefore, to endure hardship with Christ and his people rather than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. These men of the Bible ride very loosely to this world. They're but pilgrims. They don't belong to it. They don't want to settle down in this world. They know that that's wrong. They're meant for another. It's the other realm that matters. It's the other realm that counts. It's here everywhere in the New Testament. Our Lord was always teaching that. You get it in the epistle, set your affections on things above, not on things on the earth. It's the great theme of the book of Revelation. Now, I say it's very important for us to remember this. Because it is the thing that controls the teaching with regard to slavery and all these other matters. A man's relationship to God, yes, and his view of this present life. As a passing, temporary, evanescent something. No, it doesn't mean, of course, that this life and this world have got to be ignored. 
It doesn't mean that you dismiss them, therefore, as having no importance at all. No, no, it doesn't mean that for one minute. Still less does it mean that you decide to become a monk or a hermit or an anchorite or something like that. That, of course, was just a complete misunderstanding of the teaching. But it does mean this. That we don't put this life first. We don't start with this. We don't always think about this. No, no. This is only considered in the light of the other. We are pilgrims of eternity. We are a colony of heaven, says Paul. Our citizenship is in heaven. That's where we belong. We are still living in this world. But there's our home. There's our center. There's the seat of government for us in heaven. Whence also we look for the Savior. Now, I know of nothing that is more important at a time like this than that we should grasp that big controlling principle. Man in his relationship to God, man in his right relationship to this world, it's second, not primary. God first. Heaven first, the glory first. This temporary, preparatory, not permanent, we are moving on. We don't neglect it, we don't go out of the world, I say, but we keep it in its right subordinate position. And it is in the light of that and that alone that we can understand this teaching. Well, now I want to therefore draw a principle out of all this and I put it in this form. This must therefore always be the primary characteristic of the church and of her teaching. The business of the church is to expand the Bible, the scriptures. And if those are the controlling principles in the scripture, they are to be the controlling principles in the preaching and in the teaching of the church. And I am emphasizing that for this reason. That obviously, therefore, the primary business of the church is not to deal with conditions as such, but rather with the Christian's relationship to them and how he is to conduct himself while he still finds himself in them. That is his task. That is the task of the church. I do trust that I'm making this plain. As the Bible and the church is to preach the Bible always puts its great and main and primary emphasis upon man in his relationship to God and in this temporary relationship to this passing world, so must the church. So the church must not spend her time in dealing with conditions as such in this world. That's not her primary task. And it is interesting to notice that it was not the task of the church in the early centuries. You get nothing of that at all, as I'm going to show you. There is no protest even against slavery in the New Testament. You see, the, the business is not with conditions as such, but how the Christian is to work in these conditions, how he is to conduct and comport himself. And I say that this is something which we must never lose sight of. And I venture to suggest to you that the condition of the church today is very largely due to the fact that this great principle has been forgotten. I don't want to be controversial, but I'm expounding scripture. 
I cannot find any justification in the scripture for the notion of your so-called spiritual lords in the house of lords. I can see no justification in the scripture for bishops and archbishops taking their seat in the house of lords as members of the house of lords to conduct and to debate about politics and social affairs and conditions. It's just not here. They're there as bishops, as representatives of the church. Now that, I say, is something that cannot be justified from the scripture. But let me hasten to add this. There is as little justification for free church or non-conformist ministers who spend their time in preaching politics and economics and social matters. They're both wrong. And they're both equally wrong. Here is the task of the church. To be ever reminding men of their relationship to God, even as our Lord did. People will come with their questions. It is our business to see that the emphasis on God and the relationship to God is put in the first place. And that we teach them their right attitude towards this present life and wealth. That must never be in the center. That mustn't be the main thing and the chief thing. And to me, the tragedy of the world this morning is mainly this. That while it ought to be obvious to everybody that the main trouble in the world this morning is paganism, is godlessness, is irreligion, in this and in every other land. Whereas the main trouble is, I say, that men have forgotten God and their relationship to God and their eternal destiny. While that is the position... The church is spending the whole of her time almost in dealing with the secondary matters, the passing matters, the matters that are only dealt with incidentally in the scriptures. Merely as illustrations of the great general principles. Isn't this tragic? The church leaders, so-called, are always talking about these other matters that our Lord puts in a very subsidiary position, and the great central need is passing by default. Well now, here you see his teaching, which emerges, obviously and of necessity, out of what the Apostle tells us here. Now, there is one other aspect of the matter that I might just mention at this point, before we can go on to deal with the detailed teaching. And it is this. There are those as Christians who, as I say, uh, have been tempted to contract altogether out of the world, as it were. There have been Christian people who say it's wrong for a Christian to vote at a borough election or a general election. They regard it as sinful for a Christian to go in for politics, local politics or imperial politics. Of course, that again is just a complete misunderstanding of the teaching. It's as bad as the others that I've just been referring to. That isn't what is taught here. You've always got this balance. You are not to go out of the world. You don't cease to be a citizen of this world. And you're to exercise certain functions as a citizen while you are in this world. Yes, but keep it in the right place. Keep it in the right position. It's always this question of priorities and of emphasis and of what comes first and of what comes second. 
Well, now then, there it is, and I'm afraid we've got to leave it at that for this morning. But as I told you at the beginning, the matter is one which is surrounded by so many difficulties and perplexities that the only safe way to approach it is to look at your scriptures, look at them carefully, bring them all together, compare scripture with scripture, don't rest out a text and say, this is what the Bible says, take it in its context, take it as a whole, put it together with all the others, then see the great principles of teaching. And so we can leave it for this morning with this fundamental controlling idea in our minds and in our hearts. If you and I cannot say that our first and chiefest concern is our relationship to God, then what we may believe about these other matters is irrelevant. If we cannot say that we are viewing our life in this world as temporary, passing, evanescent, again we're wrong. If we in any shape or form in our own thinking or in our talking to others give the impression that this world and this life are everything and this must always be at the center, this must be first and we must always be talking about this, I say we are no longer in a New Testament position. The problems are there and we've got to do something about them. We've got to realize our relationship to them. But if we don't do so in that way, remembering that it is all but passing, but temporary, and that what really matters is the fact that we belong there, we are not in the Christian position at all, and our deductions are almost certainly therefore to be wrong. Well, there it is. Let us try to think these things out during the coming week, that we may proceed from that to consider the teaching of the Scriptures, first and foremost with regard to slavery, but also with regard to any one of these positions where we are involved with other people in employment or under the state or whatever it may be. How am I to, what am I to do about it? What's my relationship to it? And keep in the background of your mind, is rebellion ever justified or justifiable? These problems have had to be met by our forefathers in many centuries. There are many in the world who are meeting them this morning. Because they may not be so acute in Great Britain, that is no reason why you and I shouldn't think about them. We ought to know what we would do if such a position arises here, and it may. But in any case, we ought to be able to help others. You may have relatives in these different countries. They may write to you, they may speak to you. They say, you're a Christian, tell me, what am I to do? It is our duty, my friends, to know the biblical teaching so that we can apply it ourselves and help others to do so. May God give us grace to do that to the glory of his holy name.